The moon cradles rocking and rocking where a cloud and a cloud go by, silently rocking and rocking the moon cradle out in the sky. Then comes the lad with the hazel and the folding stars in the rack. Night's a good herd to the cattle, he sings. She brings all things back. But the bondwoman there by the bury sings with a heart grown wild how a hundred rivers are flowing between herself and her child. The geese, even they, trudge homeward that have their wings in the waste. Let your thoughts be on night the herder and be quiet for a space. The moon cradles rocking and rocking where a cloud and a cloud go by, silently rocking and rocking the moon cradle out in the sky. The snipe they are crying and crying, Leodine, 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 where no tracks on the bog they are flying, a lonely dream will be mine. About five years ago, at a function in Dublin, Pory Cullum was introduced as the doyen of Irish literature. Well equipped, I'm glad to hear that word pronounced properly. I made it, but I was never sure of it. And when the function was over, at the sprightly age of 85, he packed his bags once more and headed for America. Sadly, within the last two years, he has become incapacitated. But on the eve of his 90th birthday, 12 days ago, he was well enough to be able to receive a cash award from the Irish ambassador to the United States and a citation from the American Irish Foundation. Parry Cullum's career spans the 70-odd years of this century. Poet, playwright, novelist, essayist, biographer, writer of children's literature, broadcaster, lecturer. He even wrote a ballet based on the legend of the children of Lear, the only copy of which was lost by the woman who was going to produce it, an occupational hazard for most writers. For the purpose of this programme, we shall be looking at the early part of his career, from his birth in the workhouse at Longford in December 1881 until he and his wife Mary left for America for the first time in August 1914. It was during this period that he wrote much of the poetry we are still familiar with and that he emerged also as the playwright of merit at the height of the Irish literary revival. His father was a Longford man, coming appropriately from Glen Collum. His mother, Susan McCormack, was a native of Crossdoney, County Cavan, they met when she was working in a draper's shop in Cavan. Cullum's father had got a teaching post in the workhouse in Longford and later became its master. His wife joined him at the work and it was there that Porrick, the eldest of eight children, was born. Until two years ago, the original building was used as the county council offices but was then pulled down when new offices were built. It was here then that he spent the first six years of his life. One might imagine that life in such an institution would be somewhat grim, but Colum himself has somewhat different memories of it. Well, uh, it was it was a, a wonderful place to have a childhood in at that time because, as you know, uh, the Longford Workhouse is on the road between Leinster and Connacht. My father was master there, and I used to see these people who had absolutely no home and no, hadn't a bed. Uh, they, would, they were called the casuals and had a war to themselves. And they would come in for a night shelter. Amongst them would be the ballad singers and the, uh, and the old musicians. His father, however, had a drinking problem which resulted in his dismissal. And at the age of six, while his parents went to seek a living in America, Porrick was sent to the home of his grandparents on his mother's side in Crostonia County Cavan. He was to spend the next three years here, three years which were indelibly stamped in his mind. The companionship of his relations, their way of life, the Cavan countryside around Loch Uther. 
From these three years he was to draw inspiration for his poems, plays and stories, and in later years he was to return again and again to Cavan to seek inspiration. The person who influenced him most was his uncle Mickey Burns, a fowl dealer by trade, who travelled around to all the market towns. He was also a well-known ballad singer, who had an endless fund of old anecdotes and folk stories which he related to the young boy on their travels. His son, Joe Burns, is still living near the old home site in Crossdoney. This is how he recalls his father's trade. My father was at the fowl business, poultry business, and he used to go to the markets with him. And uh, he was a great man for music and singing a piece of a song and telling stories, and that's how Padre picked up a lot of, uh, of his stories and songs. <coughs> Where where did your father go to? What what places? He went to, well, he had Carrie Gallon the father he went there with him. Cavan the Tuesday, Kirishandra Wednesday, Kin the Lake of a Tours and Arbor Friday. But as well as the excitement, mystery, and contentment of his new found world, there was also the inevitable loneliness of the separation from his parents. Polly Colmer said that he's always been inclined towards melancholy, a factor which runs through much of his poetry a loneliness allied to a sympathy and a feeling of helplessness towards his fellow human beings, especially to the old. This characteristic can be seen in poems such as The Tin Whistle Player. Shh! Tis long since, long since, since I heard the tin whistle played and heard the tunes, the halfpenny tunes that nobody made. The tunes that were before Ken Find and Keir went Ireland's rounds, that were before the surety that strings have given sounds. And now we're standing in the mist and jigging backward there, shrilling with fingers and with breath, a tin whistle player. He has hare's eyes, a long face rimmed around with badger grey, Aimless, like cries of mountain birds, the tunes he has to play. The tunes that are for stretches bare, and men whose lives are lone. And I had seen that face of his, sculptured on cross of stone. That long face, in a place of graves, with nettles overgrown. But largely they were happy times for the young Porrick, and who a time for melancholy when one is a drover by trade. To me of the pastures from wet hills by the sea, through Leitrim and Longford go my cattle and me. I hear in the darkness their slipping and breathing. I name them the byways there to pass without heeding. Then the wet winding roads, brown bogs with black water, and my thoughts on white ships and the King of Spain's daughter. Oh, farmer, strong farmer, you can spend at the fair, but your face you must turn to your crops and your care. And soldiers, red soldiers, you've seen many lands, but you walk two by two and by captain's commands. 
Oh, the smell of the beasts, the wet wind in the morn, and the proud and hard earth never broken for corn, and the crowds at the fair, the herds loosened and blind, loud words and dark faces, and the wild blood behind. Oh, strong men, with your best I would strive breast to breast. I could quiet your herds with my words, with my words. I will bring you my kine, where there's grass to the knee, but you'll think of scant croppings, harsh with salt of the sea. After three years, his parents returned from America, almost penniless. His father now got a job as clerk at Sandy Cove Railway Station in Dublin, and Porrick rejoined his parents there. He attended Glastool National School and remained there until he was almost 17. His father, an able man, was in due course promoted to the rank of station master at Sandy Cove, and Porrick and his brother Fred got part-time jobs delivering parcels. Porrick was almost unaffected by city life. Even though he lived there from the age of nine onwards, there is very little of Dublin in his writings. His mind was filled with his cabin ballads and stories with which he regaled the local lads who followed him round for entertainment. One poem of his, however, is called Dublin Roads, but even this has a country setting. When you were a lad that lacked a trade, oh, many's the thing you'd see on the way from Kill of the Grange to Ballybrack and from Cabin Teeley down into Bray. When you walked these roads the whole of a day, high walls there would be to the left and right with ivies growing across the top and a briery ditch on the other side, and a place where a quiet goat might crop, and a wayside bench where a man could stop. And the basket carriers you would meet, a man and a woman, they were a pair, the woman going beside his heel, a straight-walking man with a streak of him bare, and eyes that would give you a crafty stare. Coming down from the hills, they'd have ferns to sell. Going up from the strand, they'd have cockles in stock. Sand in their baskets from the sea. Oh, clay that was stripped from a hillside rock. A pair that had often stood in the dock. And you'd meet no man else until you came where you could look down upon the sedge and watch the dargle water flow and men smoke pipes on the bridge's ledge while a robin sang by the hawse in a hedge. Then men would go by with a rick of hay piled on a cart with them you would be walking beside the piled-up load. It would seem as it left the horses free. They went with such stride and so heartily. And so you'll go back along the road. When he was 16, his mother died, and as his father had again lost his job, the family was dispersed between Longford, Cavan and America. Porrick remained in Dublin, and the following year, 1897, he passed an exam which enabled him to take up the position of clerk at the Railway Clearing House in Kildare Street, and so he entered the stomping ground of Dublin's literary and political figures. In that year, possibly quite unknown to the young clerk, W. B. Yeats, Edward Martin and Augusta Gregory proposed the formation of the Irish Literary Theatre, with the object of performing in Dublin in the spring of every year certain Celtic and Irish plays. They didn't clarify the distinction. Yeats, Martin and George Moore became the first directors and in January 1899 saw their first production of The Countess Kathleen by Yeats and The Heather Field by Martin. These were followed in 1900 by the production of Martin's mystical play Maeve and the following year The Emerald and Gráinne in which Yeats and Moore collaborated and on the same bill Cossan Tugain, a one-act play by Douglas Hyde, the first appearance of a play in the Irish language on a professional stage 
even though it was performed by amateur actors. Meanwhile, Cullum had become friendly with Maura P. O'Neill, who had helped Maud Gon found Inina Heron. He attended their functions, debates, and the performances of their historical Irish tableaus. The producer of these tableaus was Willie Fay, who, with his brother Frank, had organised a group of amateur players called the Ormond Dramatic Society, having previously toured Ireland and England with fit-up companies. That year, when the Ormond Dramatic Society presented Alice Milligan's The Defence of Red Hugh, the attendance included Yeats, A.E. and Lady Gregory, who were all impressed. One of the drawbacks of the Irish Literary Theatre was that they had to employ English companies for their productions. Here was the opportunity to wed Irish plays and Irish actors. It was the phase that took the initiative. When the first two acts of a new play by A.E. called Deirdre appeared in Standish O'Grady's New Ireland Review, the phase approached A.E. with the view to its production. After some misgivings, A.E. agreed and wrote the third act. Yeats then offered a new one-act play, Kathleen Houlihan, which he had written for Maud Gonn, who had agreed to take the main role. Parry Cullum joined Faye's company, playing a small role in Deirdre, that of Buinia, son of Fergus. The play got an enthusiastic reception, and, as a result, the two sides joined forces to become the Irish National Theatre Society. In the next productions, Cullum played other small parts, but now his thoughts were turning from acting to writing. But when, in fact, did he begin to write? Cullum himself gives the perfect answer. One never knows where one has begun or what one has begun for. One has gone on saying things, perhaps in one's own mind, writing things down on the backs of envelopes, that sort of thing. And one day you try to put some construction in your mind and on what you're doing. And uh, and that then we say we've begun for such a thing. Well, yes, I begun. I begun by really by writing uh, plays uh, for. Uh, the first play that ever went on uh, was called The Saxon Shillin. That was when Comunangail, the early Sinn Féin organisation, offered a prize for an anti-recruiting play. And I wrote this, and I got the prize. It was the munificent sum of three guineas. The text of The Saxon Shilling was published in The United Irishman, edited by Arthur Griffith, who was to publish many of his early poems. Now he began to write his first full-length play, which was written in rather haphazard fashion, as Willie Fay recalls in his book The Phase of the Abbey Theatre. Writing about uh, Parry Cullum, he says, As his office hours were long, he had little time for literary work. Whenever the spirit moved him, he just dotted down, at odd moments, a poem or a scrap of dialogue on the first bit of paper that came in handy, the back of an invoice or an envelope or the corner of some useless document. A lot of the first script of Broken Soil arrived in that form. When we decided to make Broken Soil the chief item in our December programme, the ever-helpful Maura Quinn so- sorted out the scraps for us and had them typed while Colin was finishing the play in the same casual fashion. He would come into the hall at Camden Street, either before or after the rehearsal, and coming up to my table would empty his pockets of pieces of paper of all shapes, colours and sizes, saying, I've a lot more here, Will. Then he would begin to shuffle the pack. Here's the first bit. No, no, that's the bit of Act 2, and that's another bit of it. Then, taking, say, a blue triangular piece. Ah, yes, here's a bit to follow where we left off last time. And this yellow bit is next, and then this on the back of the envelope. It took a deal of patience to get the jigsaw puzzle into shape, but he learned dramatic technique very quickly, and I think his playing with us helped him to understand very soon the limitations imposed by stage and proscenium. 
Broken Soil, set on the borders of Longford and Cavan, told the story of the old itinerant fiddler Con Hurricane and his daughter Moira, who find themselves torn between the desire to travel the roads or remain in the comfortable seclusion of the small farm. It was first produced at the Molesworth Hall, December 1903, two months after the production of Singh's first play, In the Shadow of a Glen. The reception it received, especially in national circles, exceeded all expectations. For the first time, there were enthusiastic audiences and a favourable press. Nationalists who had previously received the mysticism of Yeats and the stark realism of Singh with little more than sullen tolerance now proclaimed Cullum as the authentic voice, the voice of the ordinary people of Ireland. This is not to detract from the play, which ushered in a new era of plays, which has become the trademark of so many Irish playwrights even to the present day. Oliver St. John Gogarty, writing in The United Irishman, said, Broken Soil is a national drama in the fuller sense of the word, perhaps than any yet presented, not because its theme is Irish, but because the play is built and the catastrophe produced from circumstances arising out of temperament, religion and tradition peculiar to the Irish people. Cullum himself believed that he had the advantage at the time, being the only playwright who had lived as part of a rural community, and so understood the problems and the mind of the country people. The play became one of the most popular in the repertoire, and was put on several times both in Dublin and London. So, quite unexpectedly, at the age of 23, Parry Cullum found himself the most popular playwright of the day. He was now living on his own in South Circular Road, and for the first time began to take his writing seriously. Already he was writing some of his best poems, being greatly influenced also by the love songs of Connacht, translated from the Irish by Douglas Hyde, poems which he also interpreted like The Poor Girl's Meditation. I am sitting here since the moon rose in the night, kindling a fire and striving to keep it alight. The folk of the house are lying in slumber deep. The geese will be gabbling soon. The whole of the land is asleep. May I never leave this world until my ill luck is gone, till I have cows and sheep and the lad that I love for my own. I would not think it long the night I would lie at his breast, and the daughters of spite after that might say the thing they liked best. Love takes the place of hate if a girl have beauty at all. On a bed that was narrow and high, a three months I lay by the wall. When I besought on the lad that I left on the brow of the hill, I wept from dark until dark, and my cheeks have the tear track still. And, O young lad that I love, I am no mark for your scorn. All you can say of me is, undowered I was born. And if I've no fortune in hand, nor cattle and sheep of my own, this I can say, O lad, I am fitted to lie my lone. And in the same vein also from the Irish, Andrainan Down. A hundred men think I am theirs when with them I drink ale. But their presence fades away from me and their high spirits fail when I think upon your converse kind by the meadow and the linn, and your form smoother than the silk on the mountain of O'Flynn. O oh, Paddy, is it pain to you that I'm wasting night and day? And Paddy, is it grief to you that I'll soon be in the clay? My first love with a winning mouth, my treasure you'll abide till the narrow coffin closes me and the grass grows through my side. 
The man who strains to leap the wall, we think him foolish still, when to his hand is the easy ditch to vault across at will. The rowan tree is fine and high, but bitter its berries grow, while blackberries and raspberries are on shrubs that blossom low. Farewell, farewell forever to yon town amongst the trees. Farewell, the town that draws me on mornings and on eves. Oh, many's the ugly morass now, and many's the crooked road that lie henceforth between me and where my heart's bestowed. And Mary, ever virgin, where will I turn my head? I know not where his house is built, nor where his fields are spread. Ah, kindly was the counsel that my kinsfolk gave to me. The hundred twists are in his heart, and the thousand tricks has he. In March 1904, A.E. published an anthology of verse called New Songs. The collection included four of Cullum's poems, including the well-known and powerful The Plower. Sunset and silence, a man, around him earth savage, earth broken, beside him two horses, a plough, earth savage, earth broken, the brutes, the dawn man there in the sunset, and the plough that is twin to the sword that is founder of cities. Brute tamer, ploughmaker, earth breaker, canst hear, there are ages between us. Is it praying you are as you stand there alone in the sunset? Surely our sky-born gods can be naught to you, earth child and earth master. Surely your thoughts are of Pan, or of Wotan, or Dana. Yet why give thought to the gods? Has Pan led your brutes where they stumble? Has Dana numb pain of the childbed, or Wotan put hands to your plough? What matter your foolish reply? O oh, man standing lone and bowed earthward, your task is a day near its close. Give thanks to the night-giving God. Slowly the darkness falls, the broken lands blend with the savage, the brute tamer stands by the brutes, a head's breadth only above them. A head's breadth, aye, but therein is hell's depth and the height up to heaven and the thrones of the gods and their halls, their chariots, purples and splendors. Encouraged by the success of Broken Soil, his second play now began to take shape. Called The Land, it was produced in June 1905. Willie Fay has called it the best play the society received while he was producing for it. In the meantime, an Englishwoman, Miss E.A.F. Horneman, had offered the use of the Mechanic Institute Hall in Abbey Street, which he had hired, and so the Abbey Theatre came into being. Cullum's play, The Land, was one of the first productions held there. W.B. Yeats was very much involved with its preparation. This is how Father Cullum remembers him. My first meeting with William Butler Yeats was on the night of the last performance of A.E.'s Deirdre and Yeats's Catalina Houlihan, the plays that were the first offerings of the National Theatre Society, which eventually became the Abbey Theatre. I was the youth who in Deirdre carried a spear and had a speech about Fergus whom Deirdre accused of bartering his honour for a feast. I was a player and so was Maud Gone, who played Kathleen Houlihan 
and it was a party to Yeats's invitation to come to a hotel, his or hers, to discuss the draft of a play of mine. My first meeting, I say, but I had seen the poet at rehearsals and had more distant glimpses of him on the platform and in the streets. A.E. and Yeats had furnished the initial plays of the theatre, but no other playwrights had shown themselves, and so Yeats was interested when Faye told them I was trying to write a play. I need not say how exciting it was for a beginner to have himself put in the rank of a possible dramatist for a national theatre. That night, in a hotel whose name I have forgotten, I read to him and to Maud Gaughan the little play I had shown our schoolmaster, Willie Fay. Yeats noted that there were too many people, too many motives in the opening. He made me aware that there was exposition in a play and that the exposition had to be clear. He gave me a watchword. Clear the decks for action. That was the first real directive I'd ever been given for the writing of a play. Singh's plays were produced and also a play of mine, which he thought was immature, as it was. But he had faith in me as a dramatist, and when I was finishing my next play, The Land, he had Lady Gregory invite me to Cool, where we could discuss revisions and developments of the play. By this time, Yeats had learned a good deal about the technique of playwriting. And I well remember one or two scenes in the land that profited by his professionalism. But I am speaking of the poet and not of a play. In that beautiful house with its noble woods and lonely lake, I was with him without any of the pose that was mocked at in Dublin. He was a good oarsman and we sometimes rode on the lake. The lake was in a picture he had painted a golden crown in deep water, the golden crowns that kings have hurled into deep pools when armies fled. I left cool, bearing Lady Gregory's gifts, an enormous barn brack and a large, well-cooked ham. Yeats was satisfied with what I had produced. Speaking to me as a counsellor, he said, make yourself indispensable success of his second play, The Land, consolidated Colum's position as a playwright, but however, an acquaintance of his, James Joyce, whose only contribution to drama at this juncture was to appear drunk at a rehearsal, he told Colum that it portrayed all that was worst in Ibsen and Maeterlinck. Rotten from the foundation up, was how he put it. However, as Joyce was usually uncomplimentary about everything, Colum took little notice, and in 1907, his first book of verse, Wild Earth, was published. Again, Colum was the recipient of some doubtful advice this time from writer George Moore, and not for the first time. My first actual encounter with him was at A.E.'s. I was a youngster then, and A.E., deep in his armchair, but pipe in mouth, was letting me run on about a play I was working on. A ring came to the door. A.E. opened it himself, and George Moore entered the room that was littered with pictures and lighted by oil lamps. Colin was telling me about a play's writing. George Moore indulged us both by asking me to go on with what I had been telling. But you are telling it to me as a story, not as a scenario, he said, 
after I'd got under way. You must tell me what happened on the stage. He listened to my rambling account of the people I was putting into the play with the intentness of a literary expert. Well, it will be something to look forward to, he remarked, and spoken with resigned hopefulness, that sentence revealed how narrowed in intellectual interests this Dublin of ours was for the friend of Zola, Malarme, Manet. Sometime after this, there was a rehearsal of a play of mine in the Rotunda. It was a rainy night, and the cast and the author were sorry for themselves for being in such dispiriting surroundings. In walked George Moore, umbrella in hand. I thought I'd come and help you with the rehearsal, he said. How kindly that was. Here was a famous man coming to help a beginner with a play that was not being staged in the Abbey, but in a hall of the Rotunda. After my first book of verse was published, I met him in the street, and he let me walk towards the house with him. He talked to me about my poems, interestedly, sensibly. Then he said, I'll say to you what an elder poet said to me when I had published my book of poems, pagan poems. He was a French poet. We walked along as you are walking with me, and he said to me, I have read your poems. Some of them are very good. But let me ask you, do you think you are a great poet? No, not a great poet. I said, that is, Moore said. Then he said, why do it? I say the same thing to you. Do you think you're a great poet? His hand was shaping the gesture that went with, why do it? I left it in the air by saying, yes. Gesture and sentence collapsed, and there was an unstylized, oh, in that case. But a great poet is born only once in three and four generations. I did not withdraw. I was resolved that George Moore would not be able to say to me, why do it, as we walked by Stephen's Green. In a lifetime of verbal failures, I said the right thing at the right moment, and not two moments after, when there was only myself to say it to. Notwithstanding this, Colm Hubber now became a full-time writer. At Lady Gregory's he met Thomas Hughes Kelly, the son of an American banker. He had decided to establish a number of scholarships for promising Irish writers and offered Colm a five-year study period during which he was to receive his current yearly salary, £70 for the first year and increasing each following year by £10. Colm resigned his position and became a full-time writer. In 1906 he had helped to found the Theatre of Ireland and his first play, Broken Soil, was performed again but with some structural changes and under the more familiar title, The Fiddler's House. He now wrote his first experimental play, set in Persia, called The Desert. It was rejected by two English companies and years later, after much rewriting, was produced without success. But still the poems appeared, poems of simplicity, tenderness and beauty, poems inspired by the old cabin musicians like Across the Door. The fiddles were playing and playing, the couples were out on the floor, from converse and dancing he drew me and across the door.
strange were the dim, wide meadows, and strange was the cloud-strewn sky, and strange in the meadows the corn crakes, and they making cry. The hawthorn bloom was by us, around us the breath of the south, white hawthorn. Strange in the night-time, his kiss on my mouth. Cullum now had made the acquaintance of Herbert Hughes, the musician. They both shared a deep interest in ballads, and Cullum went to Antrim and Donegal with him collecting. Perhaps the best known of their works is She Moves to the Fair, which among other artists has been recorded by John McCormack. But how did it come to be written? Herbert Hughes took down the tune. We were together. I think it was in Donegal we got this song. And there was just a few words left of the old ballad. Uh, So softly she entered, her feet made no din. And she came close beside me, and this she did say, it will not be long, love, till our marriage day. Then it was my task uh, to build up the poem from those last verses. And so I got, as the last verse suggested, everything quiet, her feet made no din. I built it up from that quietude, uh, as the swan in the evening moves over the lake, and so on. I... I'm not sure, but in, uh, when I rewrote it, that there wasn't five verses in, but I can't, I mean, can't just be sure now.
1910, Padre Cullum's third play, Thomas Muskery, was performed at the Abbey Theatre. The setting was that of his birthplace, a workhouse, and the main character, like his own father, was Thomas Muskery, master of the workhouse. But, unlike Eugene O'Neill's long day's journey into night, there the resemblance ended. The play was in the Ibsen mould, the story of a man who becomes the victim of an ungrateful daughter and family, finally becoming destitute, an inmate of the workhouse of which he was once master. By this time the Fays had left the Abbey owing to a dispute, and the play was produced by Lennox Robinson, whose own one-act play, The Harvest, was in the same bill. Three years before, Singh's Playboy had caused a riot in the theatre, and now opinions had narrowed even more. Thomas Muskery was criticised by some as being a slur on the Irish, and the former hero fell into disgrace in some nationalist quarters. This brand of nationalism, in its efforts to avoid what Griffith termed a skulking servility towards Britain, had turned full circle, and became intolerant of anything which tried to dent the heroic image they had conjured up of a new super-Irish race. This attitude was later brought to a full fruition, not in Ireland, fortunately, but in the Germany of the 30s. In that year also, Colum wrote a dramatic piece based on an old Fenian story for Padraig Pierce's pupils at St. Enders, and the following spring he helped to found a new literary magazine, the Irish Review. With him in this project were Pierce, Macdonough and Mary C. Maguire, to whom he was engaged. A native of Sligo, she was a graduate of UCD and taught at Pierce's School for Girls. An accomplished writer also, she has written in her autobiography, My Life and Dream, about the rather bizarre manner in which their engagement took place. It came about one evening when another suitor arrived armed with a diamond ring. When she refused him, a stormy scene ensued, leaving her in a highly emotional state. I was stretched out in a condition of copious weeping when some minutes later another of my young men friends, a well-known Abbey author, Pori Column, called. Tearfully, I told him of my ordeal. The ring was still lying unconsumed in a corner of the grate. He fished it out with the tongs, left it on the hearthstone to cool so that it could be mailed back to the young man who had brought it. Then he settled himself gravely in an armchair and proceeded to lecture me. I think, said he, that to save yourself trouble, you should marry me. Then these fellows will all leave you alone and you won't have to go through any more of these scenes. He pursued this train of reasoning and eventually I dried my eyes and said, All right, Colin, maybe that would be best. At the end of this scene, I think he was a very sober young man at finding himself engaged to be married, for I imagine he had pondered on the marriage state about as little as I had. There were many dismal prognostications as to what would befall us, for two more unpractical young persons would be hard to meet. A mature friend of Colum's called on Violet Russell, A.E.'s wife, and said dolefully, Have you heard the news? Colum is going to marry a university girl who doesn't know how to boil water or wash a pocket handkerchief. Violet was unperturbed. Well, she said, she can learn, as I had to. I married a penniless writer and artist too. In the first issue of the Irish Review, she contributed an article on the writings of Singh. A great admirer of his, she wrote thus of other playwrights. They have indeed echoed the collective mind until the collective mind is exhausted, and Singh being dead, the Irish peasant, as a subject for drama, is dead until some fresh genius resuscitates it. A few second-rate writers can exhaust in half a decade what to the maestro remains an inspiration forever. Though obviously not referring to her future husband, 
Nevertheless, it may have a bearing on the fact that Colum never again wrote a play about the contemporary Irish countryside. The following year they were married. However, with the ending of his five-year writing scholarship looming, their financial position was somewhat precarious. We were married in midsummer in a church called the Star of the Sea by an old scholarly bearded priest. After the ceremony, we took an early boat to Hollyhead, as Wilfred and Alice Maynell had invited us to spend our honeymoon in their cottage in Pulborough and Sussex. We were to stay a few days first in London, as some of the Abbey Theatre players had arranged to put on a one-act play of Porrick's in a vaudeville theatre, which was expected to have a considerable run, and for which he was to be paid a weekly sum. On the train between Hollyhead and London, as we sat at luncheon in the dining car, we counted our united finances. They amounted to so little that I felt a cold shiver go down my spine. But my newly acquired husband was unmoved. He pointed out that he was getting money from a publisher in London, and besides, there was his play coming on. I cheered up. But we did not reckon on what was to happen. Lady Gregory, as a director of the Abbey Theatre, had some control over the engagements of the actors through their contracts. The arrangement about Porrick's play, The Betrayal, was squashed, and a play of her own substituted. We had to resign ourselves to the disappointment, which was, however, made less black by the warmth of the Maynell's kindness and by their indignation at Lady Gregory's action. The betrayal was, in fact, produced a year later in America at the Pittsburgh Carnegie Institute. Meanwhile, three quite different publications of his work appeared. The first was simply the works of Oliver Goldsmith, with an introduction and notes by Colum. Second, Songs from Connacht, nine poems set to music by Herbert Hughes, and My Irish Year, a compendium of articles first printed in the pages of the Nation and the Manchester Guardian. One of the most interesting chapters in that book dealt with the Ballad of the Midlands, the political ballads which the people called secret songs or treason songs. In Longford, Cullum also noticed the stories are mainly humorous and satirical, but in Cavan, stories had a gleam of strangeness about them. The groves of Kilachandra, no more they'll be green, nor the warbling fine thrushes, no more they shall sing, and the trout in Loch Uther, no more they shall spawn, since the downfall of Riley called Paddy Sean Bawn. No ballads are made any more, a countryman said to him, showed the people haven't the language, but he was talking to the greatest ballad maker of them all. Perhaps the best known of his own poems of that countryside is The Old Woman of the Roads, although the author himself has definite views about it now, calling it hackneyed. Notwithstanding this, the poem has got a social message and will have as long as the position of The Old Woman of the Roads is still unresolved. Oh, to have a little house, to own the hearth and stool and all, the heaped-up sods upon the fire, the pile of turf against the wall, to have a clock with weights and chains and pendulum swinging up and down, a dresser filled with shining delf, speckled and white and blue and brown. I could be busy all the day, clearing and sweeping hearth and floor, and fixing on their shelf again my white and blue and speckled store. I could be quiet there at night, beside the fire and by myself, sure of a bed and low to leave the ticking clock 
and the shining delve. Och, but I'm weary of mist and dark, and roads where there's never a house or bush, and tired I am of bog and road, and the crying wind and the lonesome hush. And I am praying to God on high, and I am praying him night and day for a little house, a house of my own, out of the winds and the rain's way. When the columns returned to Dublin after their honeymoon, there was a letter awaiting them from Porrick's aunt in America. It contained two tickets asking them to visit her. They decided against going, however, having taken a lease on a house in Donnybrook. Their financial prospects did not improve with the closing of Pierce's School for Girls owing to the lack of funds, so at the beginning of 1914 they decided to accept the renewed invitation and go to America. The lease in their house ran out and they rented a small cottage on the Hill of Hoth for the summer before setting off. There in July of that year, Pauli Cullum, as a member of the volunteers, took part in the Hoth gun running and afterwards joined Owen McNeil and Darrell Figgis in a local hotel where he startled the waitress by leaving his rifle beside him on the floor. But before any further developments took place, their day of departure for America came. They said goodbye to their friends, hoping to be back by the new year. But now, Pauli Cullum was in a new literary career as well. Within the next two years, he was to write two children's books, A Boy in Erin and The King of Ireland's Son. As his career in America flourished, so the return home was delayed. He did not realise it then, but although he returned often in future years, America was to become his home. And now he is in his 90th year. What better way to express our sentiments than his own cradle song, sung by John McCormack, for Pother Colum, an Irishman who has perpetuated in verse and in song so much of our own heritage. Things 
across the half door. Oh, men from the fields, soft, softly come through. Mary puts wrong. 